0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Well, we can do better than that. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, it, it's, uh, I'm very honored to have my good friend, Congressman Jim Clyburn, with us this evening. Um, you know, it's interesting that Jim is here today because uh, one of the first people I met when I came to Congress Uh, back in 1996 with Jim Clyburn. And he came up to me and he said, you know, we figured figured it out that my mother and father uh, were sharecroppers in the district that he represents in South Carolina. And um, he did me a major, major favor. But more importantly, he did a major favor for my mother and my father. He made arrangements for me to go back to South Carolina to speak at the church that was founded by my great-great-grandfathers uh, when they, after they came out of slavery. And he, it meant, he knew it. He knew that it meant something to, to my people. And my father talked about that day of, of returning to the South with his son as a congressman. He left as a sharecropper and returned with his son as a congressman. And Jim Clyburn made that happen. He, um, he has been our whip. He is the assistant leader now. Um, and he is a man of courage, conviction, and commitment. Um, we have Congressional Black Caucus meetings every week. And Jim, because he is in the, the top leadership, uh, he always gives a report to the caucus. The main reason I come to the meetings is to hear what he has to say. Because he is a man of, who is practical. He cares about all people. But more importantly, he doesn't doesn't care. He puts his caring into action. You know, a lot of people claim they care. Amen. But they don't do anything. <laughs> but Jim has consistently been a leader who is an action man and a man of integrity. And that's that's the last thing I want to say. He is my role model. And he is a mentor. And when you can find somebody who you can look up to and who, you know, I, I whenever I'm trying to figure out something a difficult issue, I asked myself, what would Jim do in this circumstance? Because I know he reasons everything out. He bases his decisions on experience and experiences, experiences. And I know that he takes the, his experiences and the pains that he may have gone through in his life has turned them in into a passion to do his purpose. And that purpose is about lifting up people and making their lives better. He's joined here tonight by uh, just an awesome woman who so happens to be his daughter. Um, Mignon Clyburn is with the Federal Communications Commission. She's one of our commissioners. That's major stuff, y'all. Hello? She's right there in the back. Raise your hand. And, and all of us are so proud of her, um, because she, you know, you, you have to have, it's good to have people in positions who don't forget from whence they came, and is always trying to figure out how they can lift other people up and make their lives better, and, and it doesn't surprise me, coming from Jim and his wife, Emily, and so, you know, Jim, and I just wanted you all to know, Jim mentioned it a moment ago, unfortunately the League of Women Voters decided they were going to have their debate tonight. And I I, I do have an opponent. Don't forget to vote. I just want y'all to don't forget. And so I've got to go out in Howard County and, and debate my opponent. And that's the only reason I'm leaving. I was so, so mad I didn't know what to do, but I don't want to look like I didn't show up. Hello? Um, but, but ladies and gentlemen, uh, again, uh, I ask you, and first of all, I want to thank all of you for being, for coming out. I want to thank all of you who bought the book, um, and I really appreciate it. And without further ado, please meet and greet uh, my good friend, and I do really mean it when I say good friend, uh, Jim Clyburn of the great state of South Carolina. By the way, he's the first African-American
1: congressman in over 100 years from South Carolina. Thank you. Thank you very much. Elijah, before you leave, I just want uh, your constituents here to know uh, how much I appreciate you. Uh, In fact, uh, Elijah uh, talked about the night that we had what I call his homecoming uh, back in Clarendon County. As many of you know, uh, Brown versus Board of Education started out uh, with a protest movement in Clarendon County, South Carolina. And there are a few Clarendon County people I've uh, spoken to already. Uh, And one of the churches uh, that uh, was at the center of that uh, was Mount Zero Baptist Church. And I used to pass that church on 261 all the time, and, and I always said to myself, that is just a, an interesting name to have for a church, Mount Zero. <laughs> uh, and, I always left. and then I found out uh, Elijah's family connections to that church. And I just got to tell you this, because on the night that we had that homecoming, we had a storm that rivaled. Um, Hugo. It was not a hurricane uh, but all the people who live along that lake uh, Lake Marin that separates Orangeburg County from Clarendon County told me uh, that the winds were higher that night than they were uh, when Hugo came through. And I was sweating this event because we I wanted this just to be a grand homecoming for Elijah. And this weather came up, and, uh, and I just, swear I picked my wife up, we went to the church, and when I got to that church, people were standing around the walls. They had filled up the church through all that weather. So I want to say this to you, Elijah. They came for you, but they came because of your parents and your grandparents. And uh, I want to thank you so much. You know, we have a habit in Congress of referring to each other as my good friend. And most times we don't mean it. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I really, really mean it. (laughs) when I call Elijah, my good friend. Thank you so much. And knock him dead. Uh. Well, let me, uh, before I uh, talk a little bit about the book, I I just got to uh, introduce a few people here. My Aunt Louise, uh, who I just asked her to come, this is uh, my mother's, my mother has two uh, surviving sisters, and Aunt Louise is one of them. Uh, And... uh, She is in this book. This is her daughter. Uh, we always call Lord Shorty. So I called to her her yesterday afternoon to tell her I was going to be here. And when she answered the phone, I said, Shorty? I says, uh, when have you last had somebody call you that? We grew up calling. My mother never liked that. But uh, uh, she said, well, you know, the kids in the neighborhood called me Miss Shorty. <laughs> but I want to thank them for being there. And I've got another cousin. Was Uh way in the back. Uh, she is uh, my first cousin once removed. Uh, my mother uh, and her grandmother, uh, uh, or grandfather, sister and brothers. And I want to thank her. I had no idea she was going to be here. In fact, I don't know what she's doing in Baltimore. I'll tell you the
2: truth. <laughs>
1: I want to take just a few moments to tell you a little bit about this book, and I'll answer any questions you may have. Uh, I got any other relatives in here? (laughs) Well, I mean, that we're admitting to. (laughs) Uh, You know, a lot of people caught the chicken bone uh, uh, special. And, of course, I think three of the, uh, let me see, you and Hattie came to Baltimore. Uh, Three or four went to Philadelphia. One went to New York. My mom's was the only sister that stayed in South Carolina, and I'm glad she did. Um, A lot of people have asked me about the name of this book. Uh, People have been a little bit taken with the name. Um, And I'm going to tell you how I got to the name of the book. And I think you will understand uh, a little bit about what went into the writing of this book. When I uh, first ran for office in 1970, I ran for the State House from Charleston, where I lived at the time, and um, at 10 o'clock in the evening, I was announced the winner, one of the winners uh, in that election, and of course, we were at my house uh, having uh, a joyous occasion, celebrating. The victory at around 3 o'clock in the morning, my doorbell rang. And it was a TV reporter who said to me, He says, You better get down to the courthouse. I just left the courthouse. uh, And um, something has gone wrong. So I ran down to the courthouse. uh, And sure enough, they told me that rather than being a 500 vote winner, somebody had forgotten to carry a one. And I was a 500-vote loser. So because of that little mistake, uh, there was a shift of 1,000 votes, plus 500 to minus 500. Now, nobody thought that was the truth. Uh, I didn't. But the next morning, when I got to the office, a reporter called and uh, asked me what happened. And I said to her, "I uh, looks like I didn't get enough votes. She said, oh, and you know what everybody's saying. What do you think really happened? And I insisted. I just didn't get enough votes. Now, on that day, that Tuesday, we were talking on Wednesday, on Thursday morning, the newspaper headlines came out. And, of course, when the newspaper was published, on the day, on that Tuesday, when I was being counted out, John West was being elected governor of South Carolina. And he was on his way to Kiowa Island for R&R and stopped over in Charleston and picked up some newspapers. When he picked up the newspaper, the Post and Courier, uh, it was a news in Courier at the time, he saw that headline in quotes, right under the mask head, I didn't get enough votes. And he was taken by the fact uh, that he knew what the rumors were also, that I had uh, expressed that kind of temperament after being counted out in the election. So he went to the phone booth. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And he called my wife, I had already left because I was really upset. I went and talk to any more uh newspapers. I went up to New York uh to uh get over it and uh, my wife called me and told me that gov- governor elect was trying to find me. I called him he asked me to meet him the following Monday in Columbia, and I did Now he offered me a job on his staff, which i And I demurred. Of course, we had a very long conversation after that. And he finally convinced convinced me that I should come to his staff, and I did. He laid out what he wanted to do for South Carolina. And one of the things was to create uh, a state agency uh, to handle these kinds of issues. And I'll see uh, one of my uh, former colleagues. That's when I became – my job was to – monitor the creation of that agency. And so I would go to committee meetings to try to, uh, so I could advise the governor as to who he needed to talk to, what needed to be done to get his uh, uh, program going. One day in one of those meetings, a uh, legislator uh, said something that I thought was uncalled for and beneath the dignity of his office. And I went up to him and I told him what I felt. His explanation to me was, well, Clyburn, you have to understand, I'm a southerner. Well, I didn't think that being a southerner gave you license to be insulting. And so that evening, I said to one of my colleagues in the office, I said, you know, when this experience is over, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to talk, this book is going to be called I Too Am a Southerner, because I wanted to write about what it means to be a Southerner and what it means to be a black in the South. But when I got about halfway through this project, I hit a wall, and I just couldn't get it done. And quite frankly, I mean, it was a couple of years, and I just couldn't get it done. So one day, I was sitting down trying to figure out how to get this book written, because I wanted this book uh, to be a primer for young people. While I was contemplating the book It suddenly occurred to me that my father, who was a fundamentalist minister, he pastored the Church of God, my father used to take his last meal every week around six o'clock on Friday, and he would not eat again until after church on Sunday. He would spend all day Saturdays reading, writing, And he would always be humming his favorite hymn, Blessed Assurance. So I went and got the hymn book. And I opened it to that hymn and I read it and I reread it. I wanted to see if that that hymn could do for me what it seemed to have done for my dad. And all of a sudden, it just opened up. So I went back to my computer. I changed the title of the book to Blessed Experiences. And in order to keep the theme that I wanted to develop, I put the colon there and said, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black. Yeah. And so when I submitted the book to the University of South Carolina Press, I, uh, I submitted 186,000 words. They came back to me and said, we don't publish books of this type beyond 150,000 words. We want you to consider cutting 36,000 words out of the book. So I took the next two years rewriting the book because I had to go all the way back to the beginning because there's so much in the book that builds on what went on before. And so I had to rewrite the book. I took the 36,000 words out. We submitted it. Uh, to the University of South Carolina Press, they sent the book out to three professional uh, readers, writers to read it. And they all came back, a little suggestion here and there, but they said, don't change the title. Keep the title. Now, at the end of every chapter in writing this book, I applied a test. As you find out in the book, I started my professional career uh, as a public school teacher, teaching history in the Charleston, South Carolina public schools. And so I said at the end of every chapter, I asked myself three questions. Number one, would those students I used to teach understand what I just wrote? Number two, would they get a lesson from what I just wrote? And number three, would they be motivated by what I just wrote? And if I could not answer all three of those questions in the affirmative, I went back and uh, reworked the chapters because I wanted this book, any young person, to pick this book up and see in every chapter a lesson and be motivated. Now... I think I may have accomplished my purpose. Uh, Amazon.com gives the book five stars. And it, I, I went online as recently as two nights ago to see what people were posting in, uh, in comments about the book. Uh, I've I read now 21 comments. Oh, I'm sorry, 23 comments. 21 of them give it five stars Two gave it four stars. Now, one of the ones who gave it a four star identified herself as having graduated from the same high school that I graduated from. And so I got to find out who that is to see <laughs> what I may have done to her. Uh, but but this, this book, uh, I'm very proud of the product. Um, it is now uh, in its fourth printing, And it's... Um, we're going to, uh, paperback will be published uh, in the, uh, next month, November, uh, and uh, it has been adopted uh, by three colleges, uh, well, three universities, and uh, for uh, a supplement. In fact, I'm going to be meeting uh, with a class next Tuesday night at the University of South Carolina uh, to launch uh, their uh, study uh, of this book. I think that uh, I'll tell you just a couple of things in the book and I'll answer any questions. There's a big part of this book that talks about my experiences here in Baltimore. I first came to Baltimore when I graduated high school to live without Louise for the summer and uh, uh, to find a job. Now, it's a very hot summer, and um, I spent more time uh, in the bowling alley Uh, because one day while I was out looking for a job, it was so hot, and um, I wanted to cool off, and I had never been in the bowling alley, but I thought that bowling alley might have air conditioning. So I went into a bowling alley, and I watched the people bowling. I had never bowled. And I said to myself, you know, I can do that. So I went over and I rented some shoes. And the guy behind the desk showed me how to keep scores. And I went out and I started bowling. I bowled three games that day. And I was absolutely smitten. Uh, and bowling became... My big pastime, and in fact, uh, Mignon's 's first crib uh, came because I got so proficient at bowling uh, until uh, I used to go up and down the East Coast uh, from New York uh, down to uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. in fact, even though Calo, Florida, uh, bowling, we did something we call pot bowling. Uh, that was 10 amount. Some people might call it gambling. It was pot, potboar. <laughs> uh, but I made more money bowling than I made teaching school. <laughs> uh, and, so, uh, uh, and there's a big piece of this book about what bowling and golf did for me. Now, uh, when I moved to Columbia from Charleston, I, um, my dad, for some reason, when I was a kid, gave me uh, a golf ball and a club, one club, one golf ball for Christmas. I don't know why he did that. Uh, I guess it may have been all he could afford. Um, but I also fell in love uh, uh, with golf. And one of the stories I'll tell you is, is, is kind of interesting. While I was in the governor's office in 1971, we, he was sworn in in January of 1971, So the first Christmas, December 1971, John West decided that he wanted to have a staff retreat, and it would be a Christmas weekend for the staff, and um, the gentleman who was in charge of organizing the weekend, we were sitting down with the staff, and he said, well, when we get down to Wampee, it's a little place. Those of you who may be from Berkeley County, uh, South Carolina, near Charleston, you would know where Wampee is. I see two people uh, right outside of uh, Monk's Corner going over toward uh, Panopolis. So that's where we were going to spend the weekend at Wampee. So they, they were sort of dividing up all of the duties and responsibilities for the staff. And they said, well, uh, you do this and you do that. And then he said, now on Saturday morning, the governor wants to play golf. And since nobody on the staff plays golf, who would want to volunteer uh, to take the governor to the golf course Saturday morning? And I'm the only black guy in the room and I just delighted (laughs) in saying to them, I play golf. (laughs) And they all looked at me. And one of them just got enough nerve to say, you play golf? I said, yes, I play golf. He said, well, I guess the assignment is yours. And so that Saturday morning, we all headed up to Santee Resort to play golf. When we walk into the clubhouse, this was 1971, quite on the golf course. And the governor walked up and says, I've got two foursomes. And the guy behind the desk looked at me and he looked at the governor. The governor didn't say a word. He started getting the scorecards and gave them to us. And I went out, played golf on that golf course. Now, the governor pretended that he did not know what was going on. He knew. Not only did he know, that was the first time he did things like that. And in fact, when he was no longer governor, uh, living on Hilton Head, I I still play in the pro-am. Uh, of the Heritage Golf Tournament every year. And up until he passed away, uh, Governor West would come out and walk with me uh, during the program of that tournament. Now, for our 35th wedding anniversary, uh, I bought a lot uh, at Santee Resort. Country Club, uh, so that golf course uh, that I played on the silent protest <laughs> uh, became my uh, my weekend home, and uh, we built a house there and, and spent a lot of our time there. Right now, these kinds of experiences are in the book. And I'll close with this one. I met, I spoke to Lulac, uh, the Hispanic Caucus is having its. Uh, uh, it's Heritage Week this week, and I spoke uh, to Lulac this morning. And the lady introducing me talked about the fact that um, I met my wife in jail. Uh, and a lot of the uh, young people reacted to that pretty uh, nauseously. Um, uh, and that's true. We met on March fifteenth, 1960. Uh, you remember the students at Greenwood, uh, A&T, they sat in on February 1, 1960. And on February 15th, I, along with six others, organized a sit-in in in Orangeburg. When we got down to the S.H. Crest, they had removed the tops of all the stools. And we decided uh, that that was going to be a very uncomfortable (coughs) sit-down. So so we did not uh, sit in. But we went back one month later, March 15th, this time with over 2,000 students from Claflin and South Carolina State. I saw uh, at least one Claflin person here tonight, and I saw somebody went, there she is back there. South Carolina State State back here. Uh, uh, We went down to integrate. The lunch counter. Well, needless to say, uh, 388 of us got arrested. And uh, while I was in jail uh, contemplating uh, whether or not we had done the right thing, uh, we got locked up around 10 o'clock in the morning. It was about 6 o'clock in the evening, and I'm still sitting there waiting to get bailed out. Some of the students who did not get locked up that day um, went back to the campus And they figured out some creative ways of getting into the dining room, and um, they brought us food. Well, as I was standing there waiting to be bailed out, this little 92-pounder standing off to my left was holding a hamburger. And I made some statement about how hungry I was. So she came toward me with the hamburger. When I reached for it, she pulled it back. She broke it in half. Gave me half. She ate the other half. I was so grateful for that half hamburger. I married her 18 months later. (laughs) Now, now, I always thought that that was a chance meeting until our 10th wedding anniversary which we were celebrating in Charleston, and some of the students from South Carolina State that we had been friends with came down to Charleston to help us celebrate our 10th anniversary. Well, that night after dinner, we all went back to, uh, to, to my house and we were sitting around, all the guys sitting in the uh, rec room, and, and the ladies were up in the dining room, uh, everybody talking, and I made some statement about how lucky we were. And I talked about this chance meeting in the jail, Barnesburg County Jail. And all of a sudden, there was a presence at the door. And I looked up, and Emily was standing there, and she says, that's what you think. <laughs> so I looked at her I said, what do you mean what I think? I mean, that's the day we met. I don't ever forget that, March 15, 1960. And then she told me. She said, well, uh, it may be time for me to tell you this. She said, one day, I was standing in the dormitory room with my roommate. And I saw you walking across the campus with that young lady you were dating at the time. And I told my roommate, they do not make a good couple. He is going to be my husband. And then she set out her plan uh, so that meeting that day she had been stalking me for a <laughs> true story and she will tell you that first time Congresswoman Corinne Brown from Jacksonville Florida uh, had a, a book event for me down there and I went down there and Emily was with me and I, I mentioned to the group uh, this, this story that, so Corinne got upset with me she came up to me and afterwards. She says, "You ought to be shaming yourself, uh, lying like that on your wife." I said, "What do you mean? What did I lie about?" She said, "About that uh, her stalking you." I said, "Go ask her." <laughs> she was sitting over there so Korean went over and says, "That can't be true, is it?" I said, "What can I say?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll answer you the questions you ever have. <laughs>
3: Okay, we'll take a few questions, and then uh, Congressman Clyburn will be signing books at the front, and books are outside for sale, so please purchase some books. And please speak in the mic because we are podcasting this. Here you are. Excuse me. Tight. Hey, Congressman,
2: it's good yes, to sir. see
1: you again.
3: Good to see you. Yeah, I wanted to ask, uh, I know you in South Carolina.
1: I've been very concerned about what happened to the people who were under the Fuskies, the
3: South Sea Islands, Uh, the the families that left. Yeah, Mm -hmm. people who live under the Fuskies. Last time I was over there, there were no natives on the island, and it's been
1: taken over now for a conference center and all of that. Uh, Is there anything going on in the state government that you may know of, that you may have
2: sponsored, to make sure that their culture and their history remains alive, and is still going forward?
1: Well, there's a story in the book about the the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. My wife is from Monk's Corner. Uh, So you'll know, I bet every one of you have called somebody Geechee in in your lifetime, and you thought you called them that because they talk funny. Well, uh, it's a culture. Uh, In South Carolina and North Carolina, the culture is called Gullah,
4: Gullah
1: yeah. in Georgia and Florida. It's Geechee, mm-hmm. and my wife's from Muscogee. She is Gullah. Uh, I tell people all the time uh, that uh, we could be sitting out. She has a master's degree uh, in library science. We can be sitting out at the table uh, talking, and uh, she'd be talking like that master degree person she is. The phone rings, and I answer the phone, and it's her mother on the phone. And I would hand her the phone, and she lapse into that <laughs> gullah, uh, And I wouldn't understand what she was talking about. So I started studying the Gullah gitche culture, because I wouldn't understand what she was saying. <clears throat> well, that culture came under great threat of being just... Eviscerated, and so I set out to try to preserve the culture. I got a grant from the National Park Service uh, to do a study of the Gullah Geechee culture and to see whether or not we could make the case for getting uh, it preserved. They did a two-year study. They came back and said it was an endangered culture worth preserving. And we then took that study and got created the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor that runs from St. Augustine, Florida up to Wilmington, North Carolina, defined by 35 miles inland. Now, the the great story in the book about this is how we got it done. It took me seven years to get it, And on the last time, I was still being uh, I got to pass the house three times, and it was being held up in the Senate. Well, previously, on my way to a golf tournament in Sun Valley, Idaho, a buddy of mine said to me said so I saw on the list that you were going. Uh, to Sun Valley for the Danny Thompson Golf Tournament. I said, yes. It was during the month of August that we were all out. He said, "Well, why don't you leave a couple of days early and stop over in uh, Park City, Utah. Since said, Orrin Hatch is having his big event, and um, I've got to go to that. This guy used to be on Orrin Hatch's staff. Uh, he says, um, why don't you go uh, out there with me now? I wasn't all that anxious to go to Oren Hatches' Golf Tournament. <laughs> uh, but this guy had been supporting me. Uh, he's a big Republican, but he's always supported me. I said, okay. So I went on my turn to and I said, Emily, we're going to leave a couple of days early, and we're going to, on our way to Sun Valley, we're going to go uh, up to Sun Valley, uh, uh, I mean, the Parks uh, City. And we went. Oren didn't know I was coming. So that night at the banquet, Oren looked up and saw me sitting at the table uh, next to the table where he was and he recognized me uh, to the group and when the dinner was over he came over to me he says, look I consider your being here an act of friendship. He said and if ever there's anything you think I can do to return this act of friendship all you need to do is ask, and I thanked it. and four or five years, maybe longer, went by, I never asked it until I found out why my bill was not passed in the Senate. Kohlberg from Oklahoma was stopping the bill. See, in the Senate, one person can, can stop a bill, and he filed an objection, and somebody told me who was objecting. So to make a long story short, I went to Orrin Hatch. And I said to him, I says, Senator, you remember that little golf outing up in Utah? He said, yeah. I said, him, my wife was with me. She is Gullah. I got this Gullah Geechee heritage card a building there, and Colbert is stopping it. I need Colbert off my back. It was 10 o'clock in the morning when we talked. Two o'clock that afternoon I got a call saying that the bill had been hot-wired or hotlined or whatever they call it in the Senate. And at 5.30, I got the call that the bill had passed the Senate unanimously. So that's how I got to go to get you here this corner.
2: Hi Congressman. My name is Diane Corbett. I want to know what do you see as African-Americans, their future, and um, especially young people, um, with so many police brutalities across the United States. What are you in Congress doing about the situation with police brutality against African-American males? And also the historical black colleges, are you working to do anything about that? Because a lot of our colleges are in trouble, even here in Baltimore. One of the colleges that I attend, Sojourner Douglas, is in trouble right now. You know, Which one? Sojourner Douglas College. is an independent college in East Baltimore. And, it's uh, a
1: minority Menard- uh, serving institution, mm-hmm. but not an HBCU. Right. Morgan is the HBCU. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and um, I want to know, you know, what are the fe- do you see the futures for African-American um, historical black college in America? Because I think it's a need for it, And it's always going to be a need for it because I heard, you know, someone said that after President Obama was elected that we didn't need any more black colleges. And that's not true because I never heard them tell any other ethnic group that they don't need a certain university, you know, and I think that. Um, we, as African Americans, need to teach our children where we come from and continue. I saw in your book about your little history lessons that you have in it, and I also saw that you were talking about the historical black colleges sure. and also about the jobs for our people, job training. And I'll um, sit down.
1: Okay. Well, let me uh, – you've covered three uh, areas here. First of all, as it relates to historical black colleges, remember, I'm a graduate of South Carolina State. Um, I have seven. HBCUs in my district. Uh, You can count them. Allen Benedict in uh, Columbia, Mars in Sumter, Sacramento State and um, Claflin uh, in uh, Orangeburg, Voorhees and Sacramento Trade uh, in Denmark, seven in my district. There's nobody in the Congress. More devoted to preserving, restoring uh, HBCUs and I am. Um, we put in place several years ago, before uh, when Maxine Waters was chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, I set out uh, to try and restore historic buildings uh, on the in sites on the campus of all these. And we got to study it now. There are 720 uh, sites, historic sites on the HBCU's uh, campuses. Not just buildings, but sites as well. So, uh, and we've been getting that funded every year. I just found out that that law has sunset, and I have introduced legislation already uh, to... Uh, rekindle that law uh, on the book, and i 'm going to try uh, in the lamb duck session there'll be something coming through in the lamb duck session that everybody wants, and i 'm going to try to tag that onto the lame duck in order uh, to move move that agenda so uh, every chance I get i 'm looking for some way uh, to do something for HBCUs. Well, um, you know, you, uh, Elijah Cummings is, is very much part of that. I, I hold an honorary degree from Morgan. I hold an honorary degree from Bowie. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I have 34 honorary degrees.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, and the reason I got all them honorary degrees is because those folks uh, have seen that as a way to say thank you uh, for what I've done. So I'm, I'm telling you. Um, Nobody is more devoted to getting that done uh, for HBCUs than I am. There's not much you can do here. It's all about legislation and and trading off to get the legislation going. Now, what you can do is keep electing Elijah Cummings because he's one of the people that I I deal with. Uh, I I get along fine with all your legislators. I mean, you know, um, uh, Sarbanes, I know uh, very well, uh, and of course, I don't know why I'm blocking on. Uh,
3: Stanley Hoyer, oh, Dutch or <laughs> Stanley Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi. I get along
1: with, uh, with Stanley and, and Margaret. Uh, I'm not talking about Hoyer. I don't know why I can't think. The one that's in the leadership with me, I, I meet with him every day. I'll, his never will come to me in a minute. Uh, Van Hollen, Chris Van Hollen, okay. is who I was trying to think of. So I get along with your entire delegation very well. And they all support these programs. Um, So uh, that's all that it takes with that. Now, when it comes to um, what is happening with young black males, uh, I have three daughters, two sons-in-law. My first uh, grand is is a young man who is now a junior uh, in college. And I'm telling you, um, I'm troubled uh, tremendously uh, by uh, the impunity uh, that seemed to exist uh, when it comes to people interacting with black males. There's a, it's a fear factor. Uh, there's a story in this book about the morning after I got elected uh, in 1992. The morning, the next morning, I got on the elevator going up to the Capitol City Club uh, in In, in Colombia, uh, to meet somebody for breakfast, when the elevator stop on the seventeenth floor, uh, because on this particular elevator from the first floor, the next stop is the seventeenth floor when the elevator stop on the seventeenth floor, going up to the top floor, a young lady the door open to Uh, white people were standing there and they looked up and saw me. They refused to get on the elevator. Now, uh, I just got elected to Congress. I don't know. The night before. But all they saw was my skin color. And this fear factor that seemed to be there and it seemed to be getting worse. And so, it is unfortunate uh, but I'm going to tell you, the equalizer to all of that is our participation in the process. Absolutely. 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 One of the things about Ferguson, uh, and as Elijah said, I I, I I spend a lot of time studying these issues. Any time you see me on TV, a lot of people think when I'm answering questions on TV that they're spontaneous and uh, they say, well, yeah, how I, you, you seem uh, to have... A quick wit. That's because when I'm in a car, if I'm driving, I'm practicing. I I, I drive. I, I think all the time about situations and how to respond. And most times you see me, you think it's spontaneous. It ain't spontaneous, I'm telling you. Uh, I, I, I just spend a lot of time thinking about this. So I started, I had my staff to do research on Ferguson. And here's what we found. Something very, very interesting. Some of you may have seen this already. In 2012, the people of Ferguson voted 70% with Obama on the ticket. This past April, they had municipal elections. They voted 6%. 6%. Now, one of the things we've got to get everybody to understand, Barack Obama or no other president will be going to your board, school board meetings or your city council meetings or your county council meetings. We've got to get people to understand that every single election is consequential. There are consequences that flow from every election. And this is not about, as someone, when I I, I made this statement someplace and and the bloggers went crazy uh, saying that uh, uh, that I'm a member of the elected class, this is going to be true when I'm retired. It was true before I was born. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of this is that uh, people tend to feel emboldened when you don't demonstrate any interest in what they're doing. And so uh, that mayor that's been quoted as saying everything is fine in Ferguson um, ran unopposed this past April. Now, I don't understand that uh, because uh, when I look at the fact that you got one school board member, I mean, no school board members, and one city council person. And you got 67% black population. That would never happen in my district. If I had to move to the town myself, <laughs> it would never happen. And so I think that that's where we, we've got to drill in people the notion that elections have consequences.
3: Congressman Clyburn, yes, it's certainly nice. a pleasure to have you here in Baltimore with us this evening. Thank you. Um, I have South Carolina roots grandmother graduated from Voorhees aunt graduated from South Carolina State mm-hmm. my concern is that of the other gentleman who made who talked to you f- uh, first question um, I looked, went to Fripp Island mm-hmm. in South Carolina sure. and I had to, had to have a pass That's right. to get on Fripp Island right. as a tourist I could not believe it went over to Sapelo and I'm looking at what's happening over there and I'm wondering if they are part of your Gullah uh, sure. protection program. Yes. Other question, how do you think our president is holding up now that those folks are acting so crazy in Washington? You spoke of um, Orrin Hatch. And that was a time when there was civility mm-hmm. in Congress. It's way past being civil at this point in time. So I'd like you to make a comment on those two things. Thank you.
1: Well, Sapelo and Fripp are within that. Rem- remember, the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor is defined uh, two ways. It runs from St. Augustine, Florida, up to Wilmington, North Carolina. That's that's the length. The breadth is 35 miles inland. So, if you're sitting on the banks of the ocean. 35 miles inland, all along the way, that defies the Carter. That, in fact, you'll you have to go two steps to get Fripp or Sapelo. They're both right on uh, on the water. So, yes, they are defined. Now, you've got another problem, and uh, we've been working this for a long time. Uh, it's one thing to preserve the culture, and there's something else to preserve the property, the wealth. Those are two different things. And what we've done, one of the biggest problems we have uh, in that part of the uh, the country, uh, something we call heirs' property, uh, because so many uh, people uh, have passed away leaving uh, no will, and in some ways, uh, just leaving the land um, to children with no definition to the will—it's uh, one of the biggest problems we have now. Someone you, you mentioned Um i remember when Fuske, uh had uh, about nine people living on. I remember that. The post, the postmistress, right. <laughs> you know. Absolutely, I remember all of that. You go there now, on the Fusky Island. There are three golf courses. Um, and I'll never forget this: the chair, of the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, the commission, is a man named Herman Blake. Now, Herman Blake was when I was on the board of Penn Community Center, right outside of Fripp Island. Herman Blake was the chairman of the board. And we took a boat over to the Fusky Island one afternoon. Mignon was with me. Uh, the, The story is in the book about that trip to the Fusky. September Clark, some of you may remember, was on the boat with me. I will never forget Herman Blake approaching the lady Uh, who owned a significant amount of acreage. And he asked her not to sell her land. Her reply to him was, it's my land, I do what I please. I had never forgotten that. It taught me a real lesson that day. uh, In the first place, it taught me that if you want to have that kind of a conversation, make sure that nobody but you and her. <laughs> because I really believe that she reacted the way she did, playing to the group
3: sure.
1: rather than to him. So I learned a tremendous lesson. The other lesson I learned that day uh, was on the way over there, uh, when we got out in the middle of uh, Calaboga Sound, the waves. Start, it was a little bit rough, and the boat started to rock a little bit, and Yan was a little girl at the time. She got very excited. and So she was running from one side of that boat to the other. I wasn't excited. <laughs> Those waves were bothering me. And so I kind of yelled at her to sit down. I didn't know it, but Septim Clark was looking at me and watching And after a while, our our eyes met, and she pat the bench next to her. I understood that meant for me to come over and have a seat. I sat down next to my Septima, and she looked at me, and she said these words. Isn't it strange how we sometimes react? when we see so much of ourselves in our children. (laughs) She could have smacked me. (laughs) She could have spat in my face, and it would not have had the impact that those words had. Uh, I have not been the same to all my children since. Uh, Those are the two lessons I got on that trip. Through this book, you see similar lessons that I think that you will uh, be able to relate to. This probably is going to be the last question. Good evening. I see what time they want me to sign books.
4: Congress Cliven. Uh, my name is Cindy Williams, and I run a private nonprofit called Loving Arms, Inc. I'm from South Carolina. I've been working here in Maryland for the last five years with runaway homeless and unstably housed youth and young adults. Just this past Monday, we received a federal award to do a program in South Carolina, so I'm proud to say that I'll be returning home to work with children who are being human trafficked and sex trafficked and I'm I wanted to just find out because I was very disturbed when I did the research on what was happening in South Carolina. Um, we are in the top numbers when it comes to teenage pregnancy and illiteracy. Um, there were no programs that were really specifically slated and designed to specifically serve youth under the age of 18 who were homeless. Shelters will not accept. African I mean males, period, if they are over the age of 10 in shelters. So we will be coming into South Carolina to do one of the first programs of this kind. But I'm curious to know what is being done in South Carolina and what other programming and funding is being provided throughout the U.S. actually to address this issue that's really becoming epidemic in the states um, around children being trafficked.
1: Well, um- the two to pause to your question, first of all, you just got a federal grant. Yes, sir. That's where Elijah and I were. Now, what happens at the state level will depend upon what happens to the state legislatures and the state legislators in South Carolina. Uh, I could find out. I, you know, I, uh, I wish I knew uh, everything. Now, my cousin Bill Clymer is in the state legislature, uh, and I'd be glad to ask him. But I I will say this. South Carolina um, swept way to the right years ago. Uh, We've had two successive governors in South Carolina that don't see the value in those kinds of programs. In fact, if you go online, you find out that since 2009, 500 children have died in South Carolina under the auspices of the Department of Social Services. Um, And it ain't about, it's not just about race. A lot of people like to put it on race. We just had five, a father, you all may have seen the headlines, a father killed five of his kids um, about a month ago. Uh, uh, They were white. Um, so this is—it's it, it, become epidemic, and I'll guarantee you, uh, if you look behind the statistics, you're gonna find everybody focused on uh, 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 cocaine and crack cocaine. You gonna find meth. Mm-hmm. That's what you gonna find behind that, but nobody puts that in the headlines. Mm-mm. They're trying to pretend that those five kids ain't dead. But they are, so I'm saying to you, and this has become one of the big issues in the gubernatorial race this year because they have. Uh, she brought in a letter from Hawaii uh, that cut staff, cut funding, start evaluating everybody based upon how much money they save, rather than how much service they're given. and so that's become a big issue. Now that she had to fire the letter, but. Uh, that is happening all over in these red states where the interest has gone to how much money you can cut out. Look, just look at just what you attempt to do at the federal level with food stamps. It's not about whether or not you effectively serving people, it's how much money you can save. And uh, I think that you always uh, save money. But the two things I want to say, and, and, and I'll um, go back to signing. First of all, don't ever let people argue efficiency when it comes to government. That's not what you should be arguing in government. Government exists to be effective. Mm -hmm. If you want efficiency in government, you want one man rule. That's the most efficient form of government is for one person to rule. You may not like it. But it would be very efficient. And so what you have to do in government is seek a way to balance efficiency and effectiveness all the time. And that is what we have to really uh, get people to understand. The last thing I want to say is this. Another big mistake we make is that people tend to view our society as moving on a lineal plane. People tend to feel that you, you're here and you go to here and then you go to here. And that's the way they measure Our country does not run that way. The country runs like a pendulum on the clock. Country's is always moving. Not in a straight line. The country is always moving back and forth. The country goes to the right, tops out, and it goes back left. Just come right through the history. You know, Dred Scott, in case you're familiar with, here in Maryland. you go to Brown, but you stopped off at pleasant it topped off to the left in brown and the country has been going back to the right ever since where are we now come sir where are we at this point in time? we are we have moved right in the country okay. now the question is how long do you stay right mm-hmm. when do you start the movement back to the left it requires intervention mm-hmm. on our part when I went to that jail on March 15th, I was challenging the status quo. I said to the Lulak people this morning, I said, look, y'all might have laughed when, I, when the, she said I uh, met my wife in jail, but here's what I was doing in jail. And I said to them, immigration if you want to solve the integration problem, you're going to decide that I'm going to intervene in this process. You're going to have to get active. You're going to have to really press uh, the levels of government because people in government will get away with as much as you allow them to get away with it. And so I think that uh, what we have to do is decide When it is that we are going to intervene in the process. When we elected Barack Obama in two thousand eight, we took the position that we have done our thing. And in two thousand and ten, the Tea Party took over.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Now the question is, are we gonna see the country move back to the left? Our intervention required. Let me Look at this. This is right. Going to my left, I pass through the center. When I go from left back to my right, I pass through the center. The country spends twice as much time in the center as it does to the left or the right. And how much time depends upon how in? much we had to leave.
3: Congressman <laughs> Congressman Clyburn on behalf of the, our CEO Dr. Carla Hayden and the Pratt Library, thank you for coming to share your story and thank everyone who came out this evening to participate in this event.